This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. Starting it out, somebody I really like personally and professionally, more than a pleasure to have back on the show, anchor on Al Jazeera America, host of Real Money that airs weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Al Jazeera, by the way, can be seen around the United States on Time Warner Channel, AT&T Channel 1219, DirecTV 347, Dish Channel 215, and Verizon Fios Channel 614614. Uh, Ali Velshi is our guest who joined Al Jazeera America from formerly at CNN, where he was the channel's chief business correspondent. Uh, I've mentioned before, born in Kenya, raised in Toronto, and he graduated from Queen's University in Canada, son of Murad Velshi, the first Canadian of Indian origin elected to the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. More than a pleasure to have Ali back on the program. How you doing, buddy? A belated Happy New Year. And to you. You seem to know more about me than I do. <laughs> hey, if I wrote something down about me or somebody else did, you be, you know as much about me or more. <laughs> that was a very comprehensive introduction. Very, very good to be back with you, Leslie. Uh, oh, good, good to have, you, have uh, you with us. Appreciate it. You know, everybody's talking about this Oxfam study that found the richest yeah. 1%. It, you know, we know that the richest and the most powerful that seem to kind of be that same 1% um, control... Uh, the power control the wealth, but but this is really a nasty number, and this is not Kool Aid drinking. These are hardcore facts. Uh, the Oxfam study finds the richest one percent is likely to control half of the global wealth by 2016. Talk about what this means, and this is an example of if you don't address a disparity in wages and income inequality, that this is where we're headed. Correct. Weird. Now, you know, I, I, I certainly want to start off by saying I don't, I don't want to disparage anybody with wealth. The beauty of this world is that you can get wealthy. You can move from a place in life and uh, to a higher uh, place. We have economic mobility. But this is just an extrapolation of something we've been seeing for some time. I wrote about this a year ago, uh, where the numbers are very similar. The 80 wealthiest people in the world uh, control wealth of about 1.9 trillion dollars. The bottom half of the world's income population uh, controls about $1.9 trillion. So 80 people control the same amount of wealth as 3.5 billion people. Uh, in fact, last year it was 85. It's now down to 80. Uh, the, the, but the richest 1% are going to control as much wealth as the entire 99% in the world. There's just something about that that seems uh, inefficient and not good for the, uh, the, the proper functioning of a global economy. I'm very careful Leslie, not to use the word fair, because I don't know about fair. I don't know what's right. fair. Should a billionaire not be a billionaire? Should a poor person not be a poor? I'm not discussing fair. I'm saying that there's something broken. If that's the way it goes, uh, we're just not going to end up with policies and governance that are going to help us all prosper. So that people fully, you know, understand, you know, what the, does this mean? I mean, other than what it means, you know what I mean? What, what does it mean? What is right. the bigger picture with this? Well, 
There are two things to think about here. One is that when you look at successful societies and you look at failed economies, you find the successful ones are where the bulk of the people, the bulk of the income earners and the asset holders are in the middle. This is the famous middle class we talk about. It is the reason when you look at American streets, you see every shape and color and size of people because they have come to this land from other lands where that, that ability to be comfortable in the middle class and generally speaking do better than the generation before you was readily available in the United States through work. If you create an environment where uh, assets and wealth are only built through other assets or assets uh, or access to wealth, well, then you've devalued work. So everybody in the middle doesn't do very well. Now, what you do is in most developed societies, we have a system whereby the worst amongst us are taken care of. We're actually in the world doing a great job of increasing, uh, you know, the, the, decreasing the number of people who own a dollar uh, twenty-five a day or two dollars and twenty-five cents a day. We're looking after the worst among us, and we're certainly looking after the best among us, and we're not looking after everybody in the middle. These are the people who consume, they create an economy, they pay taxes to support our government programs. So really the denuding of the middle class globally is what this issue is. That's why it's dangerous. Not just a diluting, eventually a complete annihilation and removal and non-existence. Yeah. And we've seen historically how that happened if you want to ask Louis and Marie who got their heads cut off. Right. So then you've got, you've got social tensions, you have uh, revolutions, you have, and I'm, I'm not fomenting revolution, I'm not asking anybody to be mad at the rich, I'm just saying, historically, when there's such a discrepancy between the richest and the poorest, when there's such a bifurcation in society, the middle class acts as a, acts as a remarkable buffer, because you've got people on the poor end of the middle class and people on the rich end of the middle class, but generally it's aspirational, right? It's an escalator. Uh, you start at the bottom and you, you want to end up at the top. The way the really rich get rich is not the way the middle class gets rich. Okay, The middle class gets rich because you have a job, you get an education, hopefully, you get a job, it pays more, you get uh, increases in your wages, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you get increases in your wages and you get promotions and you end up, you know, you started as the, uh, the janitor in the company and you end up as the CEO. If that upward mobility doesn't exist, you, you've devalued work. What's happening with the top 1% in the world is they are not, not a single one of them is getting rich through work. Not a single one in the top 1% earns their keep through work. They're like the British aristocracy. They earn their money off of assets or their ability to access capital and buy stuff up that's cheap and make money. Poor people don't have those options. So this is what you're, you're creating. A, a, you're just creating a society that tends to be unstable. Again, I have managed to not use the word fair throughout this because the minute you say fair, you get people coming in saying, who are you to decide what's fair? Why Warren Buffett should have the money he has and why there's some poor kid starving in Africa. I'm not dealing with fair. I'm just dealing with efficiency, prosperity, and, and a society and economy that functions. This is never a sign. Uh, 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 this is never a good sign when you have this kind of disparity in, in wealth and income. Oh, definitely. How, if, if at all, can this be stopped, reversed? Can we put the brakes down or at least, you know, put it into a, a slower track toward what seems to be inevitable for next year, 2016? 
Well, it, here's the problem. I don't think we're going to stop it by 2015, but we have to understand that uh, along with controlling the world's wealth, the 1% tend to be those who finance campaigns, uh, are in political office, know people in political office. Uh, so they perpetuate, and I don't think it's nefarious and uh, awful and deliberate, but they perpetuate a system that continues to enrich them. So, for instance, in America, if you make most of your income off of assets, your taxes, uh, you pay a, a tax rate of 15%, right? No work. American pays a tax rate of 15%, or very few do. Uh, so we have built a system where the money you earn off of other assets is valued differently than the money you earn uh, working and, and earning a wage. We have systems, taxation systems, that are not necessarily progressive, which means uh, poorer people pay a much greater proportion in the United States and around the world of their taxes than wealthy people do, because wealthy people don't need to consume up to the level of what they earn. If you earn $40,000 a year in America, you have to consume consume to the level of almost every last dollar that you earn. So we have tax systems that, that disfavor uh, the working classes and the middle class. So this has to be something we understand societally. Uh, I was at Davos last week when this report came out. It was released there, uh, talking to sort of world leaders and, and, and business people who understand that if we go down this track, there just won't be enough people to sustain our economies. The wealthy will go out and hang out with the wealthy. The poor will continue to be poor, and we'll have sort of these crumbling uh, nation-states, the kind which we were all trying to escape that we came to America for. We certainly don't want it happening in America, but we do have to understand the, fundamentally, the, the fundamental problem with growing apart the way we are. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and you would know, because I'm going to speak completely uh, you know, off the cuff here. I was driving in the car a couple of months ago, and I heard the tail end of a piece on NPR about some billionaires and trillionaires who had gathered overseas because they were concerned about this very issue. They were concerned with, the, with what, what the future would hold and what they, the, the, the 1% and 2%, need to do uh, to stop this crisis. Now, you're familiar yeah, with and, and, and remember that the rich, this has always been the case, right? The rich get rich because of the things that happen outside of their milieu, right? They have to, they depend on the fact that there are wage exactly. earners who, uh, you know, earn a certain wage and, and they can use that labor to, to, in their companies to get rich. So we do have to be careful about an entire collapse of the middle class. Even the very wealthy understand that. Now, some of them are, are, some of them are doing it for altruistic reasons. Uh, there are a small group of people who say any discussion of this and these releases of these reports by Oxfam, and Oxfam is not the only one who does things like this. In fact, they got their information from Forbes. Um, you know that this is this is fomenting unrest. This is a sort of a global Occupy Wall Street. That's just not the case. In fact, most people don't have time. Most working people don't have time to protest. They hardly have time to go out and vote, as we've seen. So we do have to figure out a way to re. See, I almost said the word rebalance society, and that's going to start getting all sorts of people angry at me. I'm not trying to take money from the. the the rich and give it to the poor. I'm not trying to be a Robin Hood here. I'm trying to say we have to figure out a way in which work really is valued and it's valued fairly so that there is some chance that if you start off as the most basic kind of laborer in the world, you can end up uh, with ownership of something. What we're talking about, Leslie, is the difference between a labor society and an ownership society. They are becoming two separate things in America. You can be a wage earner or you can own things. You can't necessarily be both. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about stagnant wages, increase of minimum wage, and get some highlights from uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum that Ali has been a part of. 
And we're back. Welcome or welcome back. Ali Velshi, anchor at Al Jazeera America, host of Real Money, which airs weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, is our guest. Ali, thank you for holding a welcome back. Let's talk about stagnant wages. I mean, everybody was really happy when we saw there was a six cents increase in November of the average hourly earnings. That then fell five cents in December, which ate up most of that six cent increase from the month before. Um, so what, what accounts for this uh, performance? I mean, of course, you know, there are people that talk about and, and you know, point to uh, government regulation. They like to point to Dodd-Frank. What accounts, in your opinion and your expertise uh, for this performance? Well, we have seen slow wage growth for a long time, and I think it's important, again, just to continue from the conversation we were having, to understand that if you go back to uh, sometime in the 1970s, uh, a time when we started to really bring technology into the fore, uh, you know, workers started to get their labor devalued a little bit. So if you separate, uh, let's say, 80% of workers from the top 20, right, and you look at the wages they've earned, the top 20 have gone up fairly consistently since the 1970s. The bottom 80% have largely stagnated, and the middle income wage in America uh, is lower now than it was before the recession. In fact, middle income workers uh, versus inflation have made no money up. So it's kind of unusual because we've seen unemployment drop from 10% to, uh, to the low 5% range. Most economists consider 5% full employment. They always think there are about 5% of people who don't want to work or they're in transition or they're going to school or whatever the case is. So we're at almost full employment. We're creating 250,000 jobs uh, a month. We're doing very, very well. So why aren't wages moving? The, the, the liberal interpretation is that the hole was really big. We lost so many jobs in the recession that even with all these jobs we're creating, uh, there's just so much extra labor capacity out there that there's no reason to pay up for labor. You can offer the wage you offer, and someone will be available to do that job. The reason that's flawed is because, as I said, this has been going on for more than 30 years. So it's actually a a big, big problem in society. The conservative response is it's got something to do with Obamacare and Dodd-Frank. Well, again, I don't know that it doesn't have something to do with Obamacare and Dodd-Frank, but Obamacare and Dodd-Frank are both very new pieces of legislation, and we've had 30-plus years of middle earners not increasing their wages. So there wasn't Obamacare and Dodd-Frank in 1980 or 85 or 90 or So both of these are flawed answers. We have two things that are working against wages. One of them is technology. We all love technology and robotics and drones and all of these things that are going to, you know, save our lives and change everything. They do take jobs away, and we haven't figured out a way to deal with that. And the other thing is that labor in a world without borders and and big trade agreements goes to where it is cheapest. So whether that's China or the Philippines or India or places like that, that wasn't a problem as much in 1970 or 1980 as it is today. So technology and outsourcing are causing workers to get lower wages. We've got, un- we've got unfilled positions in the United States, but we don't have the people who are trained to do that. So unlike Germany, we don't know how to train our workers for the right jobs, and there's no government initiative to do that because conservatives don't like that, and liberals just don't have a plan to do it. Uh, so nobody's really right on this. We have too much capacity. Our workers are not trained for the right things, and we've got to find a way to deal with technology and countries that pay their workers too little to try and keep our jobs here in America. Okay, so speaking of paying workers too little, the president wants to raise minimum wage for contractors to $10.10. A number of states have taken this up, increasing minimum wage. Does that help? So this is a 
a very interesting topic. If you go back to the midterm elections, there were four states that in which Democrats were largely wiped out, congressionally and in their in their state races. And those four states also approved ballot measures to increase the minimum wage, something that is typically not associated with conservatives who prefer prefer free markets to dictate wages. So this is definitely something that's crossing party lines. So the president has set $10.10 as what he'd like to be a federal minimum wage, a wage at which no, no state can pay less than that. That's based on when minimum wage started. If you adjusted it for inflation, we'd be at about $10.10 right now. So that's just a natural level for minimum wages to be at. What the president has announced this week is that, uh, in the State of the Union, is that federal contract workers will be uh, will will get a ten dollar and ten cent minimum wage. That's a thirty nine percent increase. So the, the president's really putting his back into this thing. There's a lot of opposition to, that, and the the most reasonable opposition I have heard is that this is still government telling private enterprises, um, you know, it's not government money. They're telling private enterprises how to spend their money, and that. Uh, ultimately, a lot of small businesses will just say, I can't afford that raise, uh, so I'm going to not hire another worker. Or I'm going to actually let a worker go. The, the, you know, Experts have done the math on this. Yes, if we had a minimum wage of $10.10 across the country, uh, lots of jobs would be lost. But the net effect of that, that income that will be gained by people who earn the minimum wage would offset that. I don't know. That's all economics. I'm not 100% sure how that all works. But it does seem weird to me. Uh, I travel a lot. So do you, Les? When you, the people who get on to clean your airplane don't earn $10 an hour. Uh, kudos to, to Delta and The Gap and companies like that that have said they'll do the minimum wage. But a lot of people don't earn a living wage in this country. Absolutely. Ali, love you. Thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you again and again. Happy belated New Year and safe travels. Ali Velshi, at Ali Velshi. Follow him on Twitter and the website for Al Jazeera's america.aljazeera.com. We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chick intervention. Because McChicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive-thru and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. Wake up breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two Chicken McGriddles or McChicken Biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time.